You are listening to episode 11 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On today's episode, we review the new Alexander Payne film, Downsizing. In honor of the 75th anniversary of Casablanca, we try to recast the classic film. In honor of the 40th anniversary of The Deer Hunter, we look at the top five three-plus-hour films in movie history. Also, our Oscar trivia is all about multiple acting Oscar winners. All this and more on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for launch. There is a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are here talking to you on the eve of New Year's Eve, uh, getting ready for 2018 coming up. Uh, once again, my name is Terry Plucknett. I'm joined once again by the completed tripod. Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz are here with us. How's it going, guys? It's going. Last night was pretty good. Went to see Shape of Water. It was actually a good movie. That's uh, actually encouraging for the Oscar movies. Yes, things are going excellent. It's like five degrees here in Kansas, which means that uh, I will stay inside and watch movies all day. Nothing wrong with that. Either movies or football, because we got some good bowl games coming up later today. Go dogs! Yeah, yeah. So that Angels pitcher, is he going to be like a pitcher and a hitter in fan- Yahoo Fantasy Leagues or what? Ooh, that's a good question. I wonder how they're going to handle Otani on Fantasy Leagues. That'd be an interesting one to find out. This this should be a segment for a future podcast. It should be. On on upcoming podcast, will Otani be listed our, twice? Would we start our Almost Sideways Sports podcast? Exactly. You know it's coming at some point. <laughs> oh, it's coming. <laughs> All right, well, once again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, it, please find us on iTunes, rate, review, so we can uh, be heard by more people. Uh, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, find us at almostsideways.com with our uh, database of all our reviews, all our ratings. You can also uh, find Adam on the YouTube channel, Almost Sideways. He is getting close to a thousand subscribers, which is pretty amazing. Um, but right now, before we get started into what we want to talk about today, Zach, I know you have some uh, comments on some of the stuff we talked about in the last podcast since you weren't able to join us. Uh, including your top five uh, film franchises. So why don't you go ahead and uh, and talk about it? Yeah, I thought your lists were pretty lame and mainstream, so you know we had to get some really obscure foreign titles. Uh, I think for my number... Oh, I, I completely agree, though, with Terry. Uh, I'll start with that as the Up series. Uh, phenomenal franchise. That one I totally agree with your pick on, Terry. Um, I would also include in my personal list the Naked Gun uh, franchise, which was not... you know was, was, you know, completely neglected in that conversation. Um, all three films are spectacular. I would also add the Diary of a Wimpy Kid franchise, although admittedly I've not seen the remake with Alicia Silverstone as the mother. Um, and I like the first two better than the third one if we're talking the original. I think actually Roderick Rules is like borderline, like a you know one of the better comedies of the of the decade so far. Um, I would also include 
uh, the Antoine Duanel series, beginning with the 400 Blows and going along with Love on the Run, etc. Um, by Francois Truffaut, made throughout the 1950s and 60s. Really cool series. Looking, if if you like Boyhood, for example, um, it's a real. It's sort of what Boyhood is based on. It's just this kid growing up in France and. Um, you know, his sort of adventures uh, growing up uh, and, you know, relationships, etc. But the number one franchise, uh, for me, which is unquestioned, is the Apu Trilogy by Satyajit Rai, excuse me, uh, the great Indian filmmaker. Um, these films were, you know, pretty much, lo not lost, but a lot of the original negatives were destroyed, and so they were really hard to watch um, in the West. Uh, but fortunately, Criterion came out with a monumental uh, box set a couple years ago. It was actually my Christmas present last year. And all three films, pa uh, Pather Pachali, uh, Aparjito, and World of Apu are marvelously restored with a 4K high-definition resolution. So if you're still looking for a wonderful Christmas gift for a cineast, consider the Apu Trilogy, which is one of the great achievements of um, DVDs and Blu-rays of the last few years. My number one film franchise. Very nice, very nice. I'm, uh, I'm disappointed you didn't try and find, uh, find Speed 3 so you could put the Speed franchise on your list. I would have loved to put Speed 3, except it doesn't exist. I, I don't know. know. Maybe like, maybe we need like a, a helicopter that can't land or something. <laughs> I, I said he was going to group together three Bergman movies, but it was uh, Truffaut. I screwed that up. Yeah, Todd. Uh. Shame on you. How could you? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, now that we're uh, through that, let's uh, hop right into our... Yeah, I'm glad we're through that. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> We're moving on now into our movie reviews. I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances. I did not really like this film at all. Movie reviews. For today's podcast, we are going to be reviewing a movie that all of us uh, we're definitely looking forward to simply because of the filmmaker that was behind this film, and that was Alexander Payne, the acclaimed director of one of our inspirations, Sideways. And this film is called Downsizing, and we're going to be talking about that, all three of us. And Todd, why don't you get us started off? What was it about, and what would you think? All right, yeah, Downsizing was a movie definitely was looking forward to, and it was disappointing, to say the least. Uh, it was a passion project for Alex and Jim Taylor, his uh, writing partner, and uh, it's got a ton of great ideas, and a lot of them don't really land all that well. And it feels like they were even getting like lazy with their dialogue. Uh, the movie was is about Paul Safranik, who's played by Matt Damon. He makes the decision with his wife to take part in a radical new environmentally and financially responsible procedure to shrink themselves and live in a contained community at five inches tall. Uh, the setup is actually kind of clever and beautiful. It, it, everything looks kind of like Vanilla Sky, and the ideas are set up in a way that kind of reminded me of Cold Souls, that re the really good Paul Giamatti movie from about a decade ago. Uh, it has a lot going for it until they actually shrink themselves. Um, after the procedure and Paul gets immersed in the community, it's just watching another movie about a boring guy who's trying to find himself. Uh, he has ups and downs, but it's all really cliche at that point, and, uh, Damon does a pretty good job of playing an everyman. He, uh, like, uh, his reactions and 
and feelings seem uh, genuine, but we've seen him play that part before in Promised Land, and I think it was kind of a missed opportunity not casting like a Jason Bateman in that role. I think it would have been a lot more interesting. Christoph Waltz is in it, and he uh, he plays uh, like the partying neighbor, and he seems like he's phoning it in. And Hong Chao got the best in show reviews, and she's probably getting an Oscar nomination. She has a really distractingly consistent accent, but uh, her emotion and passion shine through, so she's somewhat of a highlight, although I do think the character kind of portrays it uh, in a racist way. And uh, it was cool to see Gary from The Hitching Post, but uh, it sucks that he orders a regular-sized beer instead of a highliner. It's another missed opportunity. And But I do love that Alex and Jim are... Uh, Using their sideways bit part actors in their new movies, Cammy was in Nebraska, and then now Gary was in this, and Carol, Stephanie's mom, will probably be in their next movie or something, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. There's some scenes in the end of this movie that are really sort of amateurish. I was kind of shocked at how, how bad it got. And, uh, like, Hong Chao keeps asking Matt Damon, what kind of f*** oh. you give me? And I, I just wanted Paul to say, what? I don't give a f***. Oh. Because that's kind of how I thought the whole last hour of the movie. And, uh, I don't know. It's never boring. And the art direction is pretty good. But uh, it's way too long. And Rolfi Kent's score is, like, horribly misused. Uh, I think it's a mixed bag of, like, borderline greatness in the beginning and borderline awfulness in the end. Uh, Out of respect for the filmmakers, I give it an unremarkable two stars. All right, Zach, what do you think? Yeah, I'd have to echo a lot of Todd's sentiments, except I'm going to go even more extreme. I, th I think this is clearly the worst film of 2017, by far the worst film that Alexander Payne has ever done. Uh, it is an absolute train wreck. I'm not even going to give it the praise that Todd gave for the first 45 minutes. I thought the, the way that it was introduced was really uninteresting. That's about as dull... I mean, this you got to think about the concept, that people are getting shrunk. That's an amazing concept, okay? And the movie somehow manages to make it really, really dull and uninteresting in the first 10 minutes. You'd think that there would be some kind of more, you know, something more spectacular to see, but there isn't. Um, and that really goes along for the whole movie, too. You know, I kept on thinking about um, Honey, uh, I Shrunk the Kid, which itself is not really a cinematic masterpiece. But, hey, at least that had some cool sets. It had some situations where the kids were going to get stomped on and ants were going to eat them. This movie had no visual interest whatsoever. I mean, like Todd said, it's really drab. Um, it's pretty clearly using miniatures, but in a really unremarkable, uncreative way. The movie gets really bogged down in this really unnecessary exposition. Um, I mean, there's 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 like five to ten minute details about the kind of expenses that you get in the world of, of downsizing. We don't want to hear about that. We want to see the visuals. You know, we want to see a blade of grass soaring above someone's head, or we want to see what what uh, someone stomping on the people. I, I, I don't know. So we want to see something. Um, we don't want these boring banal details about this boring white guy that we don't care about at all. Um, and that's just the first 45 minutes, which I would agree are the best part of the movie. I, I don't know what to say about the last hour and 20 minutes. I mean, um, I was kind of reminded of that episode of The Office where uh, they've just merged the branches and Andy tries to hit on Pam and Jim tells him all the ways to like uh, hit on her in a really annoying way, like playing a ukulele and talking about country music and hunting or whatever. That's the way I felt about this movie. Every single possible thing to offend me as a viewer, Alexander Payne was guilty of. Making a movie that was too long. Making a movie that was racist. Maybe making a movie that was visually unremarkable. Making a movie with no kind of sense of dramatic motivation and conflict. Um, it checked all the boxes. Um, 
you know, I choose to think that this is a aberration rather than the norm for someone like Alexander Payne, whose last film, Nebraska, was a brilliant film. Um, but the fact that this was written by him and Jim, um, as opposed to being adapted, which many of his other films have been, really kind of makes me sick to my stomach. Um, it makes me really kind of question uh, him as a, as a human being and as a, as a writer and director. Um, just a disaster on all fronts. Avoid it like the plague. Horrible. No stars. Zero I can't stars. Think of, I can't think of one redeemable uh, feature in the movie, and I haven't given a no-star review, I think, in four years. And, and this will be the first in four years. What was the last one? Uh, I can look it up. No, we're going back for the Larry Crown, 2011. <laughs> wow. Okay. I think Larry Crown was better. I'd rather see Larry Crown. It was only an hour and a half. Well, you didn't see Collateral <laughs> Beauty. That, that was definitely a zero-star movie. Uh, true true all right well uh i think my my sentiments um follow more on todd's line instead of zach's i didn't think it was a complete and utter disaster but it was pretty darn close uh i thought the first half hour to 45 minutes were actually really good um as it was setting the stage for uh for the story it was going to tell and then it just kind of fell apart after that i think what makes Alexander Payne a great filmmaker is the stories that he tells take average, ordinary people and show the humanity through their experiences with those around him. Uh, you look at his last three films before this, Sideways, The Descendants, and Nebraska. It takes three ordinary people in Paul Giamatti and Sideways, in George Clooney and The Descendants, in... Um, Bruce Dern in Nebraska takes these ordinary people, sets the stage for what's going on in their life, and then you learn about them through those experiences. Downsizing set up that exact same thing. You had Matt Damon, an ordinary guy. Sure, it was a little more fantastical than it was in those other films, but you had a situation that he was going to work through and you were going to see it. Instead, he turned it into this whole, like, save the world thing and tried to make it this political statement when all it needed to be to be a good movie was just tell this guy's story and instead he tried to blow it out of proportion in a way that he's never done before and i thought the the last half of it was a complete mess and and even some of the lines at the end uh like todd was saying I don't know how matt damon said some of those lines with a straight face because he had to be saying them thinking this is garbage. <laughs> Why am I saying this? But he went through with it and said it anyways. And, and yeah, I, I couldn't stand the last half of it. I thought all the way up to, like, when he's on the phone with his wife, I thought was great. But then after that, it, it just fell apart for me. I'm giving it... I'm right on the border of one and a half and two. I'm giving it a low two-star rating. Um... And I know this film, a lot of people were excited about it. And you can tell Hollywood was excited about it. With all the cameos that are thrown in there, I mean, you've got you've got uh, Jason Sudeikis in a five-minute part. You've got uh, Neil Patrick Harris and Laura Dern in very, very small parts. You've got James Vanderbeek popping up out of nowhere in a really tiny part. All these people were, like, lining up, let's be in a new Alexander Payne movie. And then it ended up being this garbage. It was really frustrating to see. But... I will say the beginning was uh, was halfway decent. Two stars from me. 
Yeah, it doesn't feel like a real movie. It feels like like uh, something that George Clooney would have taken Francis McDormand to in Burn After Reading. You know, it feels just like fake. It, it feels like a setup, and that was something that that I had said about the trailer. It looked like a Saturday Night Live sketch, and it's pretty clear that we keep on talking about this forty-five minute threshold when the movie really starts falling apart. You know, Alexander Payne doesn't know what to do with this world. It's like he's introduced, you know, this character and the setup, and that's fine, you know. And uh, once he actually has to deal with this environment, he goes into this, like you said, Terry, this world-saving mode and this this character, the Hong Chen character, who, by the way, she's the best part of the movie. I mean, she, mm -hmm, you know, absolutely. yes, the accent is is inconsistent, but why do you have to make a movie about? Uh, this bland, uh, whatever, vanilla guy, when you could be making a movie about this kind of, this interesting activist who's arrested and absconded and, and kidnapped from her home in Vietnam and shrunken. I mean, her story is far more interesting. Now, albeit, there's, uh, you know, loaded racism and ridiculous lines and ridiculous situations, but uh, she clearly outacts Matt Damon. Matt Damon doesn't know what to do with himself, you know? Uh, she is far and away better. She, she, This character belongs in a better movie, but... Um, it's just clear that that is a, a byproduct of Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor not knowing what to do once they set up the, the stakes of this movie and go into the kind of rising action. And the crazy thing is, I think I heard that Matt Damon, uh, Matt Damon chose downsizing over Manchester by the Sea, and that's why he ended up giving that role to Casey Affleck because he wanted to be in downsizing, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, the movie that I thought. It reminded me of, especially from the trailer with like the the perfect song going on in the background, and it looked like a really great idea and had a lot of hype. Was um, uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and it kind of for me ended the same way. It's like it was a big grand idea and it didn't really work. And the one thing I didn't like about this movie most is that like once they get small, there's no reminders that they're actually small. It's like other than seeing like the big bottles of vodka, like there, it's just another movie at that point. Like there, yeah, like Zach said, there's no blade of grass flying over their heads or anything. Like they could have made it could have just been its own movie. It would have been a really bad movie, but it's just its own movie at that point. It completely abandons its idea, and then it just tries to make this movie about the refugees and the environment, and none of it's really all that interesting. And it's lazily written and. It just, I don't know, it just really annoyed me. Yeah, I mean, I was cracking up in this movie, you know, with the other four people in the audience that were with me. I mean, the like you said, uh, I, don't, I don't know how Matt Damon recited some of these lines of dialogue. How about him on the bongo drums? I mean, how can we take that seriously? <laughs> or what... <laughs> I mean, I, I lost it at that point. I couldn't take it anymore. Or and when Matt Damon taking butter... a selfie with the, with the, the kid or whatever, the, I was the, like, yeah. that, that did not seem... Right, at all. <laughs> the kid should have been played by Lucas Hedges. <laughs> he's in everything else. I just found out that he's the son of Peter Hedges. I didn't even know that. I will say there are two things about this movie that I, I'll i be nice to. Number one, there's a nice shout-out to Eugene, Oregon. Although, clearly, uh, the, the footage is not shot in Eugene, Oregon, because the target there doesn't look like that. Uh, but number two, the number two thing I'll say is I do like the one shot of Matt Damon uh, in the car when he's being driven to his house. It reminds me of the shot after Miles and Jack have gone to Frass Canyon and, Jack, and Miles is looking out the, the window of his car. It, it's like the exact same shot and it reminded me of a better time when Alexander Payne was an actual human being and came up with good stories <laughs> and movies. Uh... So it sounds like, our, like this movie our sentiment is, on this film is uh, is about the same across the board. 
I think you're being too nice to it, though. I don't. I don't know where the two star. Two stars. I mean, two stars is like, you know. I mean, this movie made this movie made uh, the Sweet Blood of Jesus look fantastic. Not to spoil my upcoming <laughs> review, but like, it made me yearn for it. Yes, we'll talk about I feel that like film this later. This movie is to Alexander Payne the way that We Bought a Zoo is to Cameron Crowe. It's just like a really lame, sappy movie that great filmmaker made at a time when they weren't on the top of their game. That stars so Matt Damon. <laughs> that stars so Matt Damon in a very boring part. <laughs> so you you sort of think that, it sounds like you're sort of saying that Alexander Payne, you know, this is just a one-off, this is an aberration, you know, we'll forgive him for it. But like, I think you have to hold his feet to the fire. Like, this is a movie that him and Jim wrote. It wasn't based on a book. It wasn't based on another writer. Like, this was his idea, you know, and, and these were the things that were on his mind at the time, the things that he wanted to explore in film. And it's like, Really? This is the way you're gonna communicate it in this racist, heavy-handed, vanilla, bland bullshit. Huh. I mean, well, I mean, it, it was the first time he's ever dealt with a budget. Like, I don't know, he, this, this is what was like fifty million dollar budget on this thing. Like, it's, I think it was ninety million. I thought it was higher. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's by far the biggest budget he's ever had. So he tried to make it a big grand million. thing and it didn't work. Yeah. And you think for you, you think that for sixty eight million they could have done a better effect shot of the actual downsizing process instead of just storing them in a big refrigerator and then closing the door and never seeing what happens. I mean, for sixty eight million, I don't know. I'd, I'd maybe like a little bit of creativity and special effects, but hey, I guess that's too much to ask. All right. So to sum up, amazingly, we have uh, two stars on downsizing from me and Todd, and zero stars from Zach. Yeah, sounds like a definitely a movie to uh, to stay away from. Even though it's like one of the few like movies from a decent director that's like on a wide release right now. It's like one of the few movies other than Star Wars playing at a, at the movie theater. But it's no good. You know, I think I think this might have to be a future power rankings. Great horrible movies made by great directors. Ooh, I like that. It's a good it's a good choice. So let's move on from downsizing. Please, let's move on from downsizing. Um, like I said, it is just about 2018. Uh, so this is our uh, kind of our January preview uh, podcast. So we gave our, uh, our review of a, of a recent film. Now we're going to go back and give um, some archive reviews, some anniversary reviews, look at some movies that are celebrating milestone anniversaries in January of 2018. So, uh, Zach, why don't you start this one? Okay, well, January is not always remembered as the fondest uh, month for great movies, but uh, for people who love foreign movies, it's usually the time that the A-list uh, international films start coming to the United States. So we actually get a pretty good supply of those, and uh, for my anniversary, I'm looking back 10 years to January of 2008, uh, a great time um, when our country was looking forward to better world leaders. And uh, the film that I remember vividly seeing is a Romanian film by Christian Mungiu called Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. It actually ended up being my number one film of 08. I guess I considered it an 08 film because I saw it in 08. Um, and this is a uh, spectacular film that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes that year and is set in 1980s uh, Bucharest, Romania, and tells the story of two young women, one of whom is pregnant, 
and the title refers to uh, how long she's been pregnant. And uh, but the the thrust of the story is about her friend Otelia, played in a remarkable performance by Anna Maria Marinka, as she tries to arrange uh, an illegal black market abortion. Um, the movie is pretty grisly. It's not really for the faint of heart. It really looks at these backwater channels in underground Bucharest. It's certainly <coughs> making not just a political statement about um, abortions, but about uh, oppressive governments and regimes in general, certainly a condemnation of the communist government uh, at that time in Romania. Um, as a film, though, uh, it's gripping. Uh, it takes place in a very short amount of time. I think it's a 24-hour time period. Um, but it's fascinating watching this character go through these hurdles as she has to arrange these um, meetings and she's talking to these people that are really, uh, r really, in some cases, horrible people that mistreat her. There's a great performance by Vlad Ivanov as, as, a, as a pretty uh, horrible uh, individual who's helping uh, to negotiate the, the abortion. Um, it's, again, like I said, not for the faint of heart. It's a gripping film. It's a represent representative of the... Uh, resurrection of Romanian filmmaking in the 2000s. Um, Manju has made several other films too that are also really solid, but uh, this I, I feel like is, is his best, um, and this is an outstanding work uh, that I will never forget seeing when I saw it 10 years ago. So my legacy film for this month is Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. All right. For me, uh, my uh, anniversary film is looking at a movie that is near and dear to both my heart and Todd's heart, as it was a movie we kind of grew up with. Uh, January marks the 15th anniversary of The Recruit, a, uh, a movie starring Al Pacino and Colin Farrell, uh, talking about the CIA. Colin Farrell plays a young, brilliant uh, trainee who's working his way through uh, CIA training. And Al Pacino plays his mentor, who uh, asks him to try and uncover a mole that has uh, popped up in his training group. Uh, it's kind of a silly movie at times, it's a, but it's a lot of fun. I always enjoyed it. Uh, and it kind of started this, uh, this trend for Pacino of, of playing this, uh, this kind of mentor character that he has kind of repeated a lot over the last 10 or 15 years or so. Um, but this one... Uh, again, because of when I saw it and, uh, and uh, how much we loved it as kids, uh, The Recruit 15 years ago came out. Uh, a fun film if you want to see a good, uh, a good action flick, uh, check it out. Right in the right, heyday good. of Pacino overacting, right? Some awesome oh, absolutely, absolutely. Todd, <laughs> right. take it away. Uh, well, both good choices. Uh... The Recruit, yeah, I, I love that movie, and I, uh, I've probably seen it 30 times. It's a, it's a good Colin Farrell <laughs> flick. and uh, uh, 30 times? Yeah, I, I watched that movie a lot back then. Spartacus. I, I was obsessed with Colin Farrell at the, times, at the time. I watched SWAT and The Recruit, like, a ton of times. But, uh, and Four Colin Months, Three Weeks, Two Days, of course. Uh, yeah, it's my number three of 2008. Great, great movie. But my milestone review is... Uh, from 1998, 20 years ago, uh, the Wong Kar Wai follow-up to Chungking Express Fallen Angels was released, and that is one of my favorite movies in my top 100. Uh, this one, I think, is even better than Chungking Express in a lot of ways. Uh, it's 
more uh, polished and less frenetic uh, and less pretentious. And it's his direct like direction is more seamless in this. Uh, it's about a contract killer in Hong Kong who must dodge the love he has for his partner uh, in order to fulfill his last uh, mission. It's packed with unforgettable sporting characters, which is no mystery why Tarantino is also obsessed with the movie. Uh, it's got perfect music and dialogue, and the look is just really cool and sexy. Uh, as the subtlest the connections to Chunking Express, and uh, as a series I get the itch to watch every once in a while, and it's the best Hong Kong has to offer other than its historical martial arts movies. Uh, Fallen Angels is a borderline masterpiece, and my number two of 1998. And it came out 20 years ago, January. Alright. So, if you're looking for uh, for something good to watch over the next month, as January is usually a little thin at the box office, uh, you've got 10-year anniversary of 4 months, 3 weeks, 2 days, 15-year anniversary of The Recruit, and the 20-year anniversary of Fallen Angels. Alright. Next, we're going to be doing something that we've had a lot of fun doing a couple times uh, on the podcast, and that is recasting a classic. And for this one, we're going to be looking at another film that is celebrating an anniversary in January. And that is this January, Todd, didn't you say it was 75 years? Yeah, 75 years. 75 years ago this January, Casablanca was released. An amazing film and an amazing anniversary to celebrate. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what would this film look like if it were made today... And let's uh, let's recast it. Let's uh, put the team together that would be making this movie. Uh, well, the movie should never be remade, and uh, so it was very <laughs> difficult coming up with a cast and crew for this. But uh, it, it it'll be interesting to see what you guys come up with. Well, what's interesting is that it kind of has been remade. I mean, first by the Marx Brothers and by Bugs Bunny, and then by uh, it was uh, Havana with Robert Redford, and then Barb Wire with Pamela Anderson, and then uh, most recently The Good German with uh, George Clooney. So, unfortunately, none of official Todd, remakes. Um, well, I think our I think our recastings will take the bar up a little bit. Hopefully, like Todd that. and Terry, where where do uh, where does Casablanca rank on your all time list? Well, that's a good question. On my all-time list, it ranks number five. I feel like it's a movie that, or is it six? Five or six, I can't remember. But uh, I feel like it's a movie I really couldn't live without. Todd's seen The Recruit 30 times. I've probably seen Casablanca 30 times. Um, it never gets old. I have it ranked number 92. Yeah. It's a movie I haven't seen in, in quite some time. But, um, but yeah, I would definitely put it up there up there on my list as well maybe not quite that high but it would it would definitely probably be at least at least top top 50 all right so let's look at uh writer director combinations for casablanca uh todd why don't you start all right uh my writer director i chose which i mean it seems kind of arbitrary but i chose jc chandor and uh because he's proven that he can pretty much do anything he's made like a really thick rich crime drama he's made a movie with no dialogue and he's made a movie that's only dialogue so he's just ambitious cocky and talented enough to take on a classic and but it should never be remade but i think someone of that caliber and that style would be the best choice zach what do you think 
well, if someone was to remake Casablanca, if you were to criticize any part of Casablanca, you could say that the sets and some of the art direction look a little bit hokey. They look a little bit 1940s. So I'd want someone that could add a, uh, add more of a visual flair to it. So my choice is Christopher Nolan, and I would want his brother, uh, John from Nolan, to write it, and Emma Thomas, his wife, to produce it. I think that team could add some visual spe uh, spectacle to it, and also be able to handle the emotional nuances of the story. And he would shoot on film. Of course. Well, he, he would need to. And this may influence some of my casting choices, too, with a score by Hans Zimmer. Although, I mean, the original score you can never top, but... I guess if we're going to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater, might as well have someone qualified at work. All right, I like your guys' choices. They're, they're good. Um, the direction I decided to go with this, uh, I don't really like my writer, but um, I'm, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. Um, when I think of Casablanca, one of the thing things I think of is it's got such great lines and such great dialogue. And who better to write dialogue than Aaron Sorkin? So I'm going to go Aaron Sorkin is going to write the screenplay for it. And for my director, um, I'm going to go with someone who has kind of um, done a lot of really interesting films and uh, very visually uh, fascinating films over the last uh, 10 years or so, and that's Bennett Miller. So I'm going to say Bennett Miller is my director, Aaron Sorkin is my writer. So with Sorkin, does that mean that he's going to throw out the entire script? Like we're not going to have, you know, um, here's looking at you, kid. Will it be some glib line that, you know, is spoken way too quickly? Uh, I think it might still be in there. I mean, you you think Sorkin's got some very uh, quotable stuff as well. You look at, like, A Few Good Men or something like that. He he can do the quotable, so maybe he would keep some of those quotable lines in there. It's just there would be a lot more lines throughout the film. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that wouldn't really fit with Bennett Miller because he's more about mood in his movies. But that, uh, it's interesting. I well, they did work together at one point when Moneyball, but that was still not vintage Sorkin. Yeah. So Todd, why don't you give us your uh, choice for Rick, originally played brilliantly by Humphrey Bogart? Uh, who would you put in that role? Well, one of the highest war performances ever, I think, was Humphrey Bogart, but if I was trying to get someone that could be just as cool and slick as him, I would pick John Hamm, because uh, even when he was playing Don Draper, he, he had the subtle line delivery, and he could totally be owning his own nightclub, and <clears throat> he's he could be dashing and romantic and sad, and uh, if any actor could say, here's looking at you, kid, I think... Mr. Draper would be the best option for that. John Hamm is my Rick Blaine. Not fair. He was mine too. I mean, there's the, there's no one. There's no one that could possibly play it like John Hamm. John Hamm. When when you think Rick Blaine, you think dapper, uh, white suit coat with uh, that uh, brandy and sitting by the piano. And there's no contemporary actor that could pull that off like John Hamm. So screw you. But I was thinking Oscar uh, Isaac too because of J.C. Chander. He was in a J.C. Chander movie. I think he could do it, but John Hamm's better. I did have a backup prepared in case someone did select John Hamm because I think he's clearly the the, the best choice. But I think if we're going to go Christopher Nolan, I think we owe it to ourselves to at least see uh, what Tom Hardy could bring to the role, even though he's not uh, American, which was the number one thing I was looking for. But I, th I I'm pretty sure he could pull off the American accent pretty well. 
I was also thinking Benicio Del Toro, but I think he's a little too old at this point, but I would love to see that. I think Tom Hardy's too young, too. That's what I was going to say. Really? He's got to be like 45, right? So Tom Hardy's nowhere near that. He's in his 30s, right? Tom Hardy is 40. 40. Oh, that's well, close not enough. that far. I mean, uh, Bogart, I think, was 42 when it, when it was made, so I think it's fine. <clears throat> Add some makeup, you know? Just not the Bane mask, but hey. <laughs> All right, well, for me, uh, for uh, for Rick, I agree John Hamm is a brilliant choice that I wish I had thought of because he would have been on my list. Um, and I'm tempted to just change it right now, but I'm going to go with my other uh, my other choice just for the sake of adding something to the conversation. Um, and my choice is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, I think he would uh, bring something really interesting to this role. He could pull off the classiness of, uh, of Rick. Um, I think it would be a very similar performance to what he had in The Great Gatsby. Uh, kind of a similar this idea of being like this uh, dapper playboy type um, uh, running this nightclub. Uh, so Leonardo DiCaprio would be my Rick. He's too polished, though. You could, you know, Rick is a damaged soul, and he's cynical. I, I don't see Leo being able to pull that off. He's too polished. He's too pretty for the role. He needs to be beat up a little bit. And, and Ham could pull that off, but also have the dapperness. I agree. However, I'm going, I didn't want to say Ham again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alright, which one do we want to go with next, Todd? Uh, we could go with the other star of the movie, Ilsa Which was played by Ingrid Bergman In maybe the greatest performance and not nominated for an Oscar um, And I chose Melanie Laurent to play that part And um, it's a hard part to recast But I think she's able to uh, kind of fit into that mode and wear her emotions on her sleeve and she's magnetic on screen when you watch her and uh, she has I don't know, I think she has the right range to be able to, to pull off that role. And I think it'd be interesting to watch her and John Hamm in a, in a romance, that'd be interesting. Yeah, it's not a bad choice. You obviously have to pick someone European. Um, when I think Ilsa, I think glamour in the old way. You know, I don't think anorexic. I don't think plastic surgery. I think uh, a large, imposing, beautiful woman. You know, when you watch Casablanca closely, you can pretty clearly see that Ingrid Bergman has a few inches on Humphrey Bogart. And I think that's because her character is kind of overpowering and overwhelming in a lot of ways. I also think it's the trickiest role of the movie with the highest war. So I was also looking European as well. Um, originally, I thought Charlize Theron because she can possess that sort of overwhelming quality. She's also 5'9". But uh, in the end, I couldn't imagine... Um, also being that blonde um, and there also has to be something a little bit vulnerable about her that I don't see in Charlie so ultimately I went with Marion Cotillard who is only five six and a half but I think again that the, the height was really important to me but I think she could pull off the vulnerability really well um, and the emotional turmoil that the character goes through I thought of her too but I thought she was a little too old so what you know she has I mean, a, she has a face though I I, 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 I I she would have been my choice too if, honestly I mean, I was also thinking Kate Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale's like 45 years old, but, you know, she still looks great, looks the part. Age is just a number. Right? Isn't that the cliche? <laughs> so for mine, it's interesting how we all had something different that we were, uh, that we were looking for in this. I was looking at the, the, uh, how the relationship between the two, uh, between Rick and Ilsa, is so interesting because Rick is so much older than her. 
Um, and so I went with someone that was considerably younger. Um, Ingrid Bergman was in her 20s when this was made. Uh, so I was looking at someone that was in their 20s. And the one that I went with was um, Daisy Ridley, who is the um, star of the new Star Wars franchise. Um, she has kind of, can have that classic beauty look to her, like Ingrid Bergman. Um, uh, just look at uh, what she did in Murder on the Orient Express, uh, which came out this year. Uh, I think she could uh, she could be a very interesting uh, choice there to play opposite uh, whoever ends up being Rick. I like it. It's not bad. All right, Todd, to pick our next one and go with it. The next one we should go with is uh, Renault, and I think that his character is is kind of quirky, and he's sort of the scene stealer of the movie, and that's why I chose Tim Roth. And I think like four rooms type Tim Roth is what I'd be looking for in this part. And I think he would be absolute gold and a surefire Oscar nominee if he were to land that role. And I think he totally has that sort of like bizarre feeling where he walks into a room and you you have to pay attention to him just because of how like how interesting he is and how weird he is. And that, that quirkiness, I think, is really important when you're dealing with this character. Yeah, Tim Roth's not a bad choice. I think he's a little too old at this point. And, um, okay, well, I, I, I will start saying that uh, I, I, this is where my list starts um, going off the rails a little bit, but just, st just stay with me here for a second. So when you're thinking about Renault, you're thinking about a shape-shifting character, someone whose loyalties are somewhat am ambigu ambiguous, and we're not quite sure what their motivations are. Um, and then I think about sort of gender ambiguity because there's always speculation that Renault might harbor feelings for uh, Rick. Um, I guess I should just say sexual orientation, not necessarily gender, but I am going to take it that direction. I am casting in my remake Tilda Swinton in drag as Renault. <laughs> now before you laugh it off, Tilda Swinton is a great actor or actress. And she can play many different roles, and the gender is, you know, uh, doesn't, you know, need, need not apply. So I think Tilda Swinton in drag, as she did in such memorable roles as in Snowpiercer and Orlando, uh, could really do a great job. That is definitely an outside-the-box choice. <laughs> I, for Renault, I'm pretty I sure that... Christopher Nolan would not cast that. <laughs> yeah, well, see, and that was my, my original directors were going to be the Wachowski brothers, or siblings, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they were originally cast on the project and fired. And, Tw and Swinton just stayed. So for Renault, awesome. I went with um, what I thought would be a, a perfect um, uh, updated version of what Claude Rains brought to the character, and that is Christoph Waltz. Um, Christoph Waltz basically playing a very similar character as to what he played in Inglorious Bastards, um, but being this kind of, uh, this figure, this kind of imposing figure kind of working through, um, I think his personality would have fit perfectly for that, and so I'm going with Christoph Waltz. Yeah, again, too old and too easy. I, I think you need to get, you know, more, uh, unusual. That yeah, that is definitely where you know disciples. Okay, Todd, I think we got one more, right? All right. Uh, yeah, one more at least. Uh, I got for Victor Laszlo. 
Uh, which is a part that I don't really think is all that difficult to recast, but, so I just cast someone I would like to see in the movie and who would uh, fit the tone of the movie, and that's uh, Adam Driver. I, I think he'd be <laughs> I think he'd be really interesting, and I think uh, okay. yeah he could play the innocence and and I don't know yeah I, I, I think I just would like to see see him in this movie. Um, well, again, when I think about Laszlo, um, I, I don't know, I guess, why I go there with this movie, but I think about height. You know, he's taller than Rick. I mean, they, they point that out in several scenes because he's the greater man. So um, I don't know how this is going to work with my casting, necessarily, if this actor is taller than Tom Hardy, but hopefully he is. I'm going with Mich Matthias Sh Schonartz. Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, not because I really remember him in any movie, but because I think Laszlo is someone who's really kind of bland and unmemorable, and that's what Matthias Schoenartz uh, makes me think of. Yeah, I'm not even that sure if I know who that is. beautiful justification. <laughs> Thank you. Are you being serious? Because I, I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even actually even think of a movie that, that I know him from, but yeah, I mean, I, I know I've seen him a lot of times. <laughs> For me, uh, the direction I went for uh, for Victor Laszlo is uh, I went with Robert Pattinson. Uh, kind of in a similar vein as to uh, Todd picking Adam Driver, but I think uh, Pattinson fits a little better. Um, he's kind of got the more classic looks uh, and can kind of be the be the better man, as uh, as as Zach said. So uh, Robert Pattinson would be uh, would be my Victor Laszlo. I feel like Terry, your casting is turning into The Great Gatsby. I mean that. You got Leo, Daisy, Daisy Ridley. Well, maybe it's just the name Daisy. I'm not sure. <laughs> I was gonna say Leo is the only one that's in that movie. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> I take it back. So now what we're gonna do is there were uh, some other kind of supporting characters that we all kind of looked at and um, and wanted to throw in our two cents on who might might play those. We might all be looking at different ones. Uh, Todd, why don't you go with uh, with your list? All right, uh, for Ferrari, uh, played by Sidney Greenstreet in the original, I went with John Goodman just because of his sheer stature and intimidation, and uh, I don't, and he has no problem playing a tiny part in big movies. And I also uh, for Ugarte, which was played by Peter Lorre, which there is no real replacing Peter Lorre ever. I I went with Giovanni Ribisi because I just love him and I think that he could play that like <laughs> the sneakiness of. Uh, of, the, of that part, even though, yeah, I, this is becoming not European at all. And for the <laughs> piano player, Sam, uh, I chose uh, John Legend just because, but he's probably too young, but if you want a piano player who can act, who wants to act, want get a 10-time Grammy winner, but I ended up thinking about it and who would be in the J.C. Chander movie, and I would have the big comeback role for Kevin Spacey. <laughs> We don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, but I said maybe it's too soon, but that could be his big comeback role. In, a, in a, another J.C. Chandra movie. As Sam? As Sam. Yeah. He doesn't have to be black. <laughs> he can play the piano. <laughs> okay. So what, what about you, Zach? Who, who, who do you get in the other ones? Okay. So, um... Uh, there are a lot of bit roles in this movie. It's one of the things that makes Casablanca so great. Um, I thought for Ugarte, uh, you know, played by the great Peter Lorre, I thought of another great Peter actor, uh, character actor named Peter Dinklage. I think he would be an awesome Ugarte. Um, I like when I was it. Thinking about 
I think uh, Sam is a highly pro- one of the most highly problematic, it, the most highly problematic aspect of Casablanca. You have this black uh, piano player who accompanies Rick and takes his bags on the train. Give me a break. Um, since it, this is a Christopher Nolan movie, I say that we get Michael Caine in there as uh, Sam. You know, now an elderly butler type um, carrying around his bags on the train and occasionally playing a, a tune on the piano. Perfect, um, just like Kevin Spacey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In all the money in the world type <laughs> makeup. <laughs> okay, but I, th- I think Michael Caine is accustomed, a little bit more accustomed to playing sort of domestic help, but uh, whatever. Um, I-, I think the only I'm way gonna... you could do this is if Kevin Spacey was originally cast and then replaced by Michael Caine a month before the oh. film came out. Perfect. Yeah, and you know, I mean, if, if we're talking, you know, Kevin, I mean, Dooley Wilson is already problematic enough. I mean, this is like talking, like, you know, saying we're going to replace... Uh, you know, Michael Vick with Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, there's, there's, there's no net gain. It's the same thing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's still problematic, but whatever. Um, okay, so this is also where it gets a little uh, off. You know, my original director was, was Werner Herzog, and um, I'm going to have him as the narrator at the beginning, and he can feel free to insert his own thoughts and his own interpretations of the story throughout the film if he wants. And then finally, um, I'm actually going to have a dual casting uh, in the roles of both Stra- Colonel Strasse and Ferrari, um, the one and only the great Peter Shimonashek from Tony Erdmann, um, <laughs> who we've mentioned on this show a couple of times. But uh, what, what I like about him is that he can do both English and German. But what I especially, why I choose him for the dual role is that as Colonel Strasse, he would have his, his white hair, and as Ferrari, he would wear the wig that he wore in Tony Ehrenmann. So there we go. On, only if the small black children that he's uh, mentoring come along with him from your hey, Goodwill he, Hunting remake. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely, you know? Never too old. Age is just a number. He's never too old. All right. Well, I only have one uh, one supporting character recasting, and that is again, uh, who you're gonna put at the piano playing Sam? And the one that I put on there was uh, Pharrell. I thought it was kind of a, a similar similar to John Legend. I I've got uh, Pharrell uh, as uh, as Sam. Racist. <laughs> Whatever. I thought okay. we were updating this movie. <laughs> uh, moving along. It's time for power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. So for today's power rankings, Todd once again won our competition last time um, that Zach wasn't here for, so he didn't get to take part in it. However, Todd won. He predicted more of Adam's list than I did. So Todd got to pick the category. Uh, Todd, why don't you tell us what we're doing today? All right, since we are on the brink of 2018, it will be 30 or 40 years since the release of the greatest movie that has ever been made, The Deer Hunter, and so we are going to rank the best movies that are at least three hours long, not including Fargo because we can't use it and because it's not quite that long. Uh, and for my list, I'm also excluding The Deer Hunter because it would be anticlimactic for me to include my all-time favorite movie in a list that is the inspiration for its ranking. And I think The Deer Hunter is excluded from our list because we just didn't include it. 
Uh, I left it off my list, but it probably should have been on my list. But since it was the inspiration, I decided, ah, leave it off. And I just thought of five movies that were better. Ooh, then then be fighting <laughs> words. Okay. <clears throat> well, we'll, think... we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get to, we'll get some more disagreement later in this list. I'm sure. All right, I'm gonna get started uh, with this. I'll uh, start with my number five on uh, three plus hour long movies, and my number five for it to uh, work, you've got to watch the extended edition. But my number five is the 2009 film Avatar, uh, the James Cameron epic uh, set on uh, Pandora, uh, with um, with Sam Worthington uh, becoming one of these uh, native uh, people. And helping them kind of save their uh, their civilization, I absolutely love this film when it came out. It's an amazing movie. I hope at some point he actually does actually make the sequels he has planned because he's been working on those for almost ten years now, and they have. I think he might have just started filming. But Avatar, I love it. Uh, and again, extended cut is over three hours, so it counts. Avatar is my number five. Start out with cheating. That's that's pretty good. Oh, it's not the it's end not of it really either. It's I'm not the end of later. it. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. When I was thinking about the list, I, I instead of just like plucking off my top 100, I decided to go with like the best use of three hours because you gotta earn your three hours and cause, which is why there's so many few, so few amount of terrible three hour movies and on, like big name directors are the only ones that get them. So for my number five, I'm going with my all time favorite movie going experience, which is Grindhouse. Mm. And uh, so when it came out in 2007, I went with Terry and a couple friends to a matinee, and I was glued to the screen from the mock trailers through when the girls beat the hell out of Stuntman Mike and Death Proof. It was my first Tarantino experience in the theater, and uh, Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror is disgusting and hilarious and brilliant, and Death Proof is vintage Tarantino with extended dialogue and comical, brutal violence. It birthed a, tri- a trilogy of machete movies, it features Nicolas Cage as Fu Manchu and Werewolf Woman of the SS. It is the most exhilarating three-hour movie ever, and uh, both cuts are actually better than the director's cuts that were released on video. So Grindhouse is my number five three-hour movie. I love it. All right. That's a great pick. I, I am actually following in a very similar uh, trajectory to Todd. I didn't just want to pluck out the top three-hour movies that appeared on my top 100 list. I thought a lot about the kind of experiment, experiential effect, because if a filmmaker is asking you to sit there for three hours, I mean, it, they really have, like Todd said, they have to use the time really well, um, and it has to be entertaining to watch, even if the story doesn't always make sense, which leads me to my number five pick, which is from 2006, directed by David Lynch, it's Endland Empire. Yes! A movie that we collectively shared as an amazing experience. Um, I can't say that I've revisited this movie since we saw it at Cinema 21 in Portland, Oregon, that fateful evening in sometime in early 2007. But I will say uh, there were some pretty profound and memorable things about it. Uh, I do remember Laura Dern as this actress, kind of in a similar mold, uh, to, uh, you know, the character from, uh, you know, like Mulholland Drive or something, very archetypal David Lynch character as she wanders in and out and she gradually starts realizing that she's getting, like, death threats on her film set. Isn't that kind of the plot, something like that? And then the Romanian Was mob there gets a involved. Plot? Well, I don't, I don't know if there was a plot. But see, this is why I'm putting it on the list, is because it was never boring. 
I mean, for three hours long, I mean, you had everything from, uh, you know, uh, random dance numbers to rabbits talking in the living room to monkey huh. being thrown at uh, Laura Dern on the sidewalk. Um, it was a, quite a, a, a festival of uh, amazing aromas and senses, and it was an unforgettable experience. So, uh, number five, uh, Inland Empire. See it if you haven't seen it. It was something we were actually able to talk Gertzen into coming out of the room for to go see it with us. I know it was a huge monumental event. Yeah, everyone's it, it was monumental for was that there. alone. <laughs> yes, exactly. And when we came out, we were never the same. Never the same. Okay, it's the last David Lynch movie ever. Sadly, well, yeah, you have to be a downer, huh, Todd? I mean, you know, David Lynch will live on in our memories as a great filmmaker, and Inland Empire. I, you know, in, in all seriousness, I think Inland Empire is like a top three David Lynch movie. But that's mostly because I don't like his movies. But Inland Empire is pretty good. <laughs> okay. Moving on. My number four. I am really cheating on my number four. Uh, but I don't really care. Uh, number four uh, is uh, is a film that was originally intended to be a three plus hour epic that the production studio forced to be split into two, uh, two hour or so, uh, movies. And so for number four, I'm going with what Quentin Tarantino originally intended for the Kill Bill epic. Uh, actually it was, uh, at one point released as a four hour, seven minute, uh, epic called Kill Bill, the whole bloody affair. So it actually is a thing, and that's what I'm going with. Um, this is one of my favorite things Tarantino ever did. This uh, revenge story starring Uma Thurman and David Carradine as uh, she hunts her way through her former assassination squad, trying to get to their leader eventually and take him down and get revenge for what he had done to her. Uh, what an amazing story, amazing... Um, Two movies that really were supposed to be one if Quentin Tarantino had his way. But uh, the Kill Bill epic is my number four. See, y'all are cheating on this list. See, when I think three-hour movie, I think of, like, one sitting. You can, you know, and, like, Kill Bill was not one movie. It's very clearly two different movies. But it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be two movies. Well, or one that, movie. It was supposed to be said, one movie. At least you admitted that you're cheating, so... Why well, I, I totally admitted I'm cheating on that one. <laughs> well, at least Grindhouse was released as one movie, and then it got split after that, so... Well, Grindhouse Grindhouse was like the other the exact, way around. Exactly, it's the exact <laughs> inverse. It's just two movies in one sitting. Y'all need to re-examine your lists. That was the only time I really, I really cheated. And it's not really cheating, because it was released that way. Okay, anyway, my number four... Uh, I went with the Stanley Kubrick masterpiece Barry Lyndon uh it's probably the most unconventional Kubrick movie which is saying a lot uh he's doing a classical novel about British nobility and royalty and it's expansive and it's ambitious and it's kind of a light tone and really doesn't really feel like any of his other movies uh technically and artistically it's Kubrick's probably his best movie and uh the three hours don't exactly fly by there's so much material that's in it though that he earns the runtime anyway, and uh, it only gets better the more I think about it. It's like borderline top 100 for me now. 
And yeah, so Barry Lyndon is my number four. I've never seen Barry Lyndon. However, um, on uh, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, it is his punchline for unnecessarily long and boring. He just references Barry Lyndon. So there you go. I completely disagree with Adnan and completely agree with Todd. I think it's a thrilling movie, and it it there are leg uh, there are famous stories about the making of that film. The level of detail that Kubrick was invested in. I mean, didn't he like consult with British royalty about what was accurate for the time, and like the stitching had to be perfectly accurate? I mean, it's absolutely rem- even if you don't like the story or the performances, just looking at the visual spectacle of it is remarkable. It's one of the most beautifully shot films of all time too. And Criterion just came out with their 4K Blu-ray of it, which looks mesmerizing. It's a must. Well, the, the the legend is that he actually used the antique costumes for in the movie like he didn't they didn't actually make their own costumes they used the old costume the the old clothing which yeah. wouldn't surprise me and you know it just comes out at this time when you know it's great auteur filmmaking when you had a studio like Warner Brothers that was willing to invest that amount of time and effort into a director like Stanley Kubrick as fastidious as maniacal as he was and this was before Heaven's Gate ruined everything but still a great testament to great auteur filmmaking um I didn't think we'd have to talk about the specifics of this list, but again, my my lists are movies that you sit down and you watch for three hours. You don't get up, you don't leave the theater, you don't watch the first part Monday and watch the second part Thursday. So um, all my movies I watched in one sitting. My number four film is also a film I watched in one sitting, and that is uh, the wonderful Blue is the Warmest Color uh, from 2013, directed by Abdelaf Kashish and starring Lea Seydoux, and Adele uh, Exarchalopoulos, something like that. Um, This was a film that got a lot of notoriety because uh, it depicted in very graphic uh, depictions of a lesbian relationship, a lesbian coming of age story. Uh, The truth is the lesbian sex scenes are pretty extreme in the film, but they're only about, you know, eight to 10 minutes long. And and so for the other 170 minutes, you have to satisfy your audience. And I thought the director and the actors did a marvelous job of that. It's really a great coming of age story about a young woman who feels really uncertain, both sexually, intellectually, uh, socially. And uh, it's about, you know, it covers about maybe a seven or eight year period in her life. Um, and her relationship with Leia Sedu is sometimes on the rebound, sometimes they're not talking. Uh, but we're really ravished by this character of Adele. And um, the movie's much more than the sex scenes. The sex scenes are really important, but it's a really beautifully acted and written um, portrait of coming of age in France. So Blue is the Warmest Color, a great three hour epic. All right. Uh, number three on my list is one that a lot of filmmakers look to as influence on why they became a filmmaker. It's kind of an epic that redefined what an epic was. And this is the 1962 classic Lawrence of Arabia, uh, starring Peter O'Toole as uh, T.E. Lawrence as he uh, goes through the Arabian desert um, during World War One. This uh, film has incredible performances by Peter O'Toole, who has, this is really his coming out party, um, as he establishes himself as one of the uh, greatest British actors of a good 40 to 50 year span. Um, but more, uh, more importantly from the performances, uh, the visuals of this film are absolutely stunning. Um, watching the, uh, the landscape shots of Lawrence of Arabia are really what epics are all about, and it's what, um, 
what inspired so many different filmmakers to be filmmakers because they wanted to try and do what David Lean did in his uh, in his great film Lawrence of Arabia. So that is my number three. Okay, both great picks. Uh, Blue is the warmest color is actually an honorable mention for me. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia not quite there. Uh, for my number three, I went with uh, one that I know that Zach's really gonna like, and that's uh, the Margaret Extended Edition. Oh my God, you didn't. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> because, yeah, it's my number one of 2011. Uh, it, uh, when it was released, it got the Once Upon a Time in America level, like, hack job editing down to 150 minutes. And it was, like, irresponsibly released, uh, like, six years after it was shoot, shot. And, uh, but it's, that cut's still fantastic. But this is, makes it, like, an all-time great, the, the extra, like, 30-plus minutes. Kenneth Lonergan is the director and writer. His screenplay is crazy and it's furious and the direction is spot on. He's able to uh, portray <laughs> devastation when needed and subtlety when needed and uh, he pulls no punches. It's pretty it's pretty daring what he's actually doing in the movie and he uh, he makes this movie about a coming of a coming of age story about an annoying privileged New York teenage girl and makes it uh, a movie about guilt and tragedy and it's beautiful and miraculous and it is a blistering masterpiece. Margaret, the director's cut because it's the only way to watch it in its entirety. Well, of course. That's my number three. Two hours and 45 minutes wasn't enough. You know, we needed it to have the extra footage. There's so much more character development and details in, the, in it. Like, you need to watch it to make it all make sense. Terry, have you seen Margaret yet? I have not seen it yet. Wow. That's very tempting. Yeah, I think in between the time that they started filming that and between the time they wrapped, um, Matt Damon, um, you know, did downsizing and uh, Invictus and probably aged about 10 years. Yeah, he, he still had his uh, Goodwill Hunting haircut when that was released, even though he was like deep into the Bourne crew cut after that. Yeah. It took a long time. I will say that and... Uh, uh, Sweet Hereafter are the two best school bus school bus movies of all time. I mean, right? No, bus because he was just driving a city bus. That so Patterson. Speed, Patterson oh, he well, he doesn't get into a crash though. Yeah, I oh. think if we're talking about the three best bus crash movies, you know, Sweet Hereafter, Margaret, and Speed. There you go. Perfect. Um, number number three on my list uh, is a movie that. Uh, at least everyone in our generation probably saw at some point, maybe in the theater, maybe on video, maybe in the six months that it stayed in theater after it was released. It was a little film in 1997 called Titanic, uh, directed by James Cameron. Um, again, uh, I don't know where, where you go wrong, although I will say that having watched the original ending to Titanic online on YouTube um, is a stunning disgrace that really makes you th rethink James Cameron as a director that they actually shot that. Uh, and Terry was the one that turned me on to that ending. Mm -hmm. um, so congrats, Terry. Um, that's the, that's the, the bit, so if the biggest criticism of the movie is that it's, uh, uh, the scene that wasn't included really sucks, that's probably a good thing for the movie, right? Um, it's a great movie. It's aged really well. Uh, I really wanted to see the 25th anniversary of it when it came back in the theaters, but I saw the 20th anniversary of it. I figure, you know, once every five years, seeing it in the theater is probably a good idea. Um, but Titanic, you can't go wrong. It, see it and don't be bored. All right, all right. Moving on to number two. Number two on my list uh, might be one of the most important three-hour movies uh, that has uh, that has been made. 
Um, definitely a story that needed to be told, and I'm glad Steven Spielberg told it. And that is 1993's Schindler's List. Uh, the story of Oscar Schindler played brilliantly by Liam Neeson as he saves um, countless Jews from concentration camps by having them work in his factories. Um, Liam Neeson is incredible in it. Ben Kingsley is uh, also incredible. The star of the film, though, is Ray Fiennes as, uh, as the menacing uh, German officer that runs a concentration camp. Uh, absolutely stunning film, heartbreaking film, a film everyone needs to see at least once. Schindler's List, my number two. All right, following up to Best Picture winners, I have another one, and that is my number two, The Godfather Part Two, And it's the only one of the Godfather movies that qualifies, and it could be the best one, depending on your taste. Uh, it's well over three hours, which is understandable, because it portrays two different epic storylines simultaneously. We get to see De Niro's Oscar-winning performance as young Vito Corleone, only in Italian. And we get to see the brotherly struggle between Don, Michael, and Fredo. We get to see the origins of the characters, and we get introduced to scene-stealing parts of uh, Hyman Roth and Frankie Pantagelli. And uh, is rhythmic and deep and amazing, always. Uh, absolutely one of the best three-hour movies, The Godfather Part 2. Yeah. It's a, it's a great pick, Todd. I, uh, I, sec I, I still prefer the original Godfather, but if we're sticking with the list of three... Uh, technically, the original Godfather is just under three hours, is it not? Yeah, it's like 170 minutes, I think. Yeah. Uh, remains the only uh, sequel along with Lord of the Rings to win Best Picture, right? Yeah. So, very well deserved. I did see the other day, randomly, that Robert De Niro was not nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes that year. So maybe we put that up with Ingrid Bergman's... Uh, omission from the Oscars in 1943 as the most egregious oversights in awards history. Yeah, that is kind of weird to think back on, but he wasn't a star yet, necessarily. But, I mean, I think he was nominated for what, Mean Streets the year before. I don't know. Yeah. Well, my number two film is also Schindler's List, uh, going along with Terry. Uh, Schindler's List is my number five film of all time, so I guess in theory, it sh in, in the longest film on uh, the, or the the highest-ranking three-hour film on my top list of all time. So in theory, it should be my number one. I'm going to save number one for something else, but uh, I second everything Terry says. Uh, it's riveting from start to finish. Um, it's three hours long, but as Ebert would say, that also makes it three hours deep. It's not uh, tough to watch. Uh, yet the violence, of course, in the, con the historical context is tough, but as a movie, uh, it's riveting storytelling. Um, the performances are magnificent in it. I think it... it uh, not it, what's underrated about it is that it it harness it uh, uh, it brings in uh, it ushers in a new era in filmmaking in the sense that um, war films World War II films prior to it were you know about kind of guns and uh, very kind of stationary static cameras. This movie Janusz Kaminski and Spielberg went for gritty realism, handheld cameras, splatter on the cameras, running around in the streets, um, and that's of course the aesthetic that we see now today in a lot of films. So really, from an aesthetic and technical standpoint, a groundbreaking film as well as an emotionally resonant and moving film. One of the most important films ever made. One of the most important films um, for, I think, uh, human history. Uh, hopefully generations from now watch it and uh, remember uh, what happened and it doesn't get lost in history because it's truly a great humanitarian act what Spielberg was able to do. So, Schindler's List number two on my list. Alright. Uh, number one on my list 
is actually one that Zach has already mentioned, and that is Titanic. Uh, one of the more entertaining three-hour experiences that you'll have. It is um, a breathtaking film in so many different ways. Uh, and I think because of its in immense popularity when it came out, it really got a bad rap for a little while. Um, but it is it deserved everything that it received um, when it came out, all the recognition it had. Uh, it jump-started careers like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Um, but I loved every part of the movie. It's a wonderful film. Um, worth watching over and over again. Titanic, my number one. Alright, unfortunately neither of those did make my list. Uh, my number one is a movie that I only found out about because Al Pacino said that it was his favorite movie of all time, and that is The Tree of Wooden Clogs. Um, it is now one of my favorite movies as well. Uh, it's among the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. It's about a farming community in turn of the century, century Italy, and uh, one of the families has a particularly smart young boy who they send walking six kilometers to and from school every day rather than helping him help on the farm like everybody else, and the conflict is that he breaks his wooden shoe one day on the walk home, and it doesn't sound particularly exciting, but the movie is mesmerizing. There are, like, several scenes where you just wa are watching uh, Anselmo walking the streets, and you seeing the world through the eyes of a young child, and every moment is alluring, and uh, it's one of the five most perfect movies I've ever seen, and uh, considering its length, that's saying a lot. The Tree of Wooden Clogs is the best three-hour movie ever. I wonder Other if than The Dear Inventor. I wonder if Pacino watched it in his dressing room on the set of The Recruit. <laughs> he, may he may have. It may have happened, yeah. <laughs> All right, Zach, number one. All right, well, my number one film, again, it's based on the experience of watching it. This film actually doesn't even crack my top 100 all time, but uh, the experience of watching it was quite unlike anything I've ever seen. It's also a film that doesn't get a lot of publicity. It's mostly been forgotten, certainly in the United States. Um, it is a French film from 1991 entitled La Bella Noiseuse, or The Beautiful Nuisance. And the director is Jacques Rivette, who's known mostly for two things in America. Number one, he's known for his extremely lengthy and talkative French films. And the second thing he's known for is proclaiming Showgirls the best American movie of the 90s. Um, we'll just let that other one subside, even though I may not entirely disagree with him there. This is the uh, second time that you have referenced that exact fact about this director on this podcast. <laughs> Well, there you go. That's what he's well known for besides his movies. He loves showgirls. Um, actually, he, he recently passed away about a year ago. Um, his films are really interesting, although like the ones like Celine and Julie Go Boating, you really have to, I don't know, you, you really have to stay awake from them. Some of them are very hard and abstract to follow. Not so with La Belle Noiseuse which is a talky film in some parts. It really only has four characters in it, and it's actually about four hours long instead of three. But it tells the story, if you want to call it a story, about the relationship between an artist and his muse, the uh, woman that he is painting. And most of the movie takes place over this four-day span in which she has come to his estate and is modeling for him, uh, usually in the nude. So, yes, there's a lot of nudity, and it's Emmanuel Bayard, so that's not exactly a bad thing. But in all seriousness, uh, it's um, just a, a really fascinating look at the artist's process. There are several unbroken shots that run like 10, 12 minutes long of just his hands uh, 
drawing with charcoal. Um, and again, that sounds really boring, and maybe you do have to be in the right mood and right mindset to watch it, but it's absolutely fascinating seeing how a great artist is able to make a beautiful uh, portrait. So if you give it a chance, if you kind of put the whole idea of story and dialogue and character to the side a little bit and just allow yourself to envelop in this experience of seeing an artist and his subject um, interact. And what's also kind of interesting is that the relationship is a power relationship and she starts turning the table and becoming more aggressive and having more agency as the movie goes along because he puts her in these very kind of sexist and misogynistic sexual positions. But that's a, that's a whole another thing. Uh, it's a beautiful, it's the closest thing to art that I can think of with a movie. Um, it hasn't been really well talked about in the West, but it's very much worth seeing La Belle Noiseuse from 1991, the best 3-plus hour movie experience of my life. All right. So let's, uh, let's recap our lists, and then we'll talk about any honorable mentions that we have. So for me, number five, Avatar. Number four, Kill Bill. Number three, Lawrence of Arabia. Number two, Schindler's List. And number one, Titanic. Uh, my list was number five, Grindhouse, number four, Barry Lyndon, number three, The Margaret, Director's Cut, number two, The Godfather Part Two, and number one, The Tree of Wooden Clogs. And number five for me was Inland Empire, number four is Blue is the Warmest Color, number three is Titanic, number two is Schindler's List, and number one is Downsizing. Oh wait, that only felt like it was three hours long. No, my number one is... La Bella Noiseuse by Jacques Rivette. <laughs> All right. So a few uh, a few honorable mention I had on my list. Uh, some had been mentioned. Actually, most of these had not been mentioned yet. I did have Deer Hunter on there simply just to say it was there. Um, it would have been on my list if uh, if we weren't kind of disqualifying it. Uh, Godfather Part Two was in my honorable mention. Uh, three that haven't been mentioned yet. Gone with the Wind. I mean, it it is kind of the epic that that made the epic. Um, uh, the Green Mile, a uh, wonderful film, and The Right Stuff was on my honorable mention. Todd, did you have any honorable mention? Yeah, I had Once Upon a Time in America, Blue is the Warmest Color, and Seven Samurai. Zach, how about you? Uh, we, we definitely have some overlap here. I had Seven Samurai, I had Once Upon a Time in America, and The Right Stuff. Good choices overall. Um, the two also that I would add is Fanny and Alexander, the theatrical cut, and uh, Tess by Roman Polanski. I'm surprised you didn't have Malcolm X. Oh, that might be a good one. I didn't think about that. Is that three hours long? Yeah. Well, there we go. Malcolm X also. Probably should have made my top five. But a great movie nonetheless. Yes, see that one too. See, Todd had that predicted in your top five, but just like so many times yeah. with Adam's list, he predicts a film to be in the top five that Adam just forgot existed. There you go. <laughs> Okay, speaking of that, it's now time to predict Adam's list. So, Adam has sent me his uh, his list of his top five three-plus-hour films ahead of time. So I have it here. I haven't looked at it. Um, but I have my predictions, and we all made our predictions, and we'll see how close we get. Um, for this one, I, I, I couldn't have any animated Batman because none of them qualify, so... Uh, what am I going to do? Or And no Star Wars qualify either, so I'm, I was kind of lost. Uh, but here is my top five, my predicted top five for Adam. Number one, uh, Return of the King. Number two, Titanic. Number three, The Deer Hunter. Number four, The Ten Commandments. And number five, The Wolf of Wall Street. 
Okay, and my predictions are similar. I have number one, Return of the King. Number two, The Deer Hunter. Number three, Titanic. Number four, The Green Mile. And number five, OJ Made in America. Ooh, Ooh good one. Nice one. Uh, I don't know Adam very well. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't rank them. I just have five random okay. ones. Uh, the Deer Hunter, Godfather Part Two, Wolf of Wall Street, Grindhouse, and The Hateful Eight. Okay. Let's see. Honorable mention, he has The Hateful Eight, King Kong, The Right Stuff, The Green Mile, Dances with Wolves, Gettysburg. And Gettysburg. and just for uh, just for Zach's sake, he also has Eternal Sunshine on his uh, honorable mention. And even that's not even and close to Todd, three hours long. And for Todd's sake, a history of violence is on his honorable mention. Those um, aren't three hours long. <laughs> Neither of them. They're not even close to three hours. Long. Okay. I mean, history of violence felt that. All right, Eternal here Sunshine we go. Sunshine is definitely a snow movie, though. It totally is. All right, here we go. Number five, The Ten Commandments. Number four, Titanic. Number three, Return of the King. Number two, The Wolf of Wall Street. And number one, The Deer Hunter. I aced it. I got all of them. Wow. Congratulations. Woo! I can't believe he or you, Terry, didn't have O.J. made in America. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Ten Commandments. My goodness. Yeah, that was the one that I was like, this is kind of a random stab, but I'm going to go with it. But it was there. And you were the one who, you were most uh, puzzled because you couldn't put the Batman movie. I know, I know. The one time I actually take the whole thing seriously, I get it all. (laughs) Uh, So So you know Todd really well. I mean Adam. uh, I mean Todd. Okay. Moving on. It is now time for Oscar trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. He's going to beat me every time. Oscar trivia. Uh, so, uh, Todd has been dominating our Oscar trivia competitions and uh, has been making Zach and I watch some different movies here and there. Um, we're going to do something a little different with Oscar trivia, but first, before we get to that, Zach has to report on the last movie he had to watch. So, Zach, remind us what it was and uh, how it was. My pick, I don't really understand why Todd picked this movie, but whatever, he did win. Um, he chose for me The Sweet Blood of Jesus from 2014, directed by Spike Lee. And what'd you think of it? Well, uh, I think Todd chose it because he's not a fan of the film. I think he had it as his second worst movie of that year and gave it zero stars, much like I gave Downsizing zero stars. It's kind of interesting that I saw the two films on the same day, um, because <laughs> actually watching Downsizing made The Sweet Blood of Jesus seem a lot better in relative terms, so maybe my review is a little skewered in that sense. Um, I, I, you know... Uh, let's let's focus on as Gene France would say. I'll, I'll focus on this part of the spacecraft that's good. Um, it's an interesting kind of remake of a '70s exploit black exploitation vampire movie. And if you think about the movie as a remake, that it was originally made in the '70s, it makes a lot more sense. This is not a narrative. Uh, this is not a mainstream narrative film in any conventional sense. So if you're expecting like a coherent storyline, a coherent linear storyline, you're just watching the wrong movie. I mean. You know, from the opening titles of breakdancing on the streets to uh, random killings and uh, it and uh, you know there's there's no coherent thread to it. But uh, I did like 
parts of it. I thought the gospel scene was really good when there's like a 20 minute uh, scene where they sing gospel songs. That's kind of cool. And um, I thought the performers did the best they could. I think Todd's being hard on this movie, maybe because he approaches it as a mainstream narrative film. Um, I give it two stars. Again, that's maybe in light of um, seeing Downsizing, but uh, by the end of Downsizing, I was kind of yearning for, um, I don't know, some crazy vampire uh, killings and some breakdancing. Awesome. I'm glad you watched those in the same day. That must have been a very bad day. <laughs> it was, I'm probably the only person in the world who's ever watched those two movies on the same day, so there's that. <laughs> I, I, that Spike Lee has really just true. lost it now, hasn't he? Like, I, I like Chirac. That was a pretty good movie, but no, not to Sweet Blood Jesus. It's terrible. I didn't think it was nearly as bad as you. you you're, you're being way too mean to the film. I, first of all, it's a remake, so you can't entirely blame Spike. He's going off of something that was made in the 1970s, and the movie is very infused with this idea of being on drugs the whole time. So, and, and it's got some like softcore, uh, semi-pornographic scenes in it. Like it's a total 70s movie. So again, you, you have to c consider the source, but it wasn't nearly as bad as Todd said. All right. Okay. Well. Did not win any Oscars that year, though. I don't it, think. It did not win any Oscars. Well, if you want to get him back for it, you can uh, you can win this time around. So, like I said, we're going to be doing something a little different with our Oscar trivia. In the past, I've been picking a random year, and uh, and we work our way through the the different nominations um, in the major categories. This time, I have a very specific list that we're going to be working off of, and we're going to see how you guys do. We're going to go back and forth, and you guys are going to go one at a time picking uh, names off of this list and whoever's last one standing wins the list that we are going to be going off of is actors or actresses with multiple acting oscars actors or actresses with multiple acting oscars there are 40 names on this list we're going to see how deep into this list we can go. I'll give you guys a little bit here to kind of prepare yourself if you want to take some notes, jot some notes down so you don't uh, forget any. Will points be deducted if we say the same name twice? Uh, no. Or are you keeping track of it? I'll, okay. I'll keep track and I'll let you know if it's already been said. Okay. All right. Um, so, that's, that's what we're going with. Actors or actresses with multiple acting Oscars. Are you guys ready? Ready. Okay, yeah. so Todd, you won last time. You get to choose. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go first. Okay. Uh, and I'll go with uh, Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey coming up again. All right. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Correct. Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis, correct. Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster, correct. Uh, Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro, correct. Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda, correct. Uh, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Usually a good guess when you're dealing with the Oscars, correct. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, correct. Sean Penn. Sean Penn, correct. Jack Nicholson. 
Jack Nicholson, correct. Uh, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, correct. Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang, correct. Jason Robards. Jason Robards, correct. Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman, correct. Walter Brennan. Ooh. Walter Brennan, correct. Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn, correct. The only one with four. Uh, Frederick March. Frederick March, correct. Glenda Jackson. Glenda Jackson, correct. Um. Hmm. How many is that? We've got 18. We're almost halfway through the list. Okay. Cape uh, Blanchett. Cape Blanchett, correct. Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz, correct. Hmm. That definitely seem, seems like you're slowing down. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jack Lemon. Jack right. Lemon, correct. Ugh. Dame Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith, correct. Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee, correct. Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor, correct. You better pick it up, Todd, because I don't think Zach's slowing down anytime soon. Pick it up. Pick it up, baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Is the king dead? Uh, I think we might be in checkmate. Potentially. Put it this way, Todd. I got five more that I can name. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, oh, uh, Greer Garson? Greer Garson is incorrect. Woo! The king has been Finally. slain. Victory is mine. Well, he needs to get one. He needs to still get one. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, Zach, give me one of the ones you got. Uh, I'm going to go Peter Ustinov. That's the supporting actor 1960 and 1964. Yes. What else you got? Also, Keep going. Melvin... Melvin Douglas. Melvin Douglas, oh, yep. Melvin Douglas, that's right. Uh, Louise Rayner. Louise Rayner, yep. Uh, Helen Hayes. Helen Hayes, yep. And I, that might be it. That might be all I have. Oh, you guys missed some big ones. All right, so there are only 12 names you didn't get. But there's some big ones that you didn't get. Uh, I'll just go right through the list here. Anthony Quinn... Betty Davis, uh, Denzel Washington, oh, uh, <laughs> Diane Weist, oh, Gary Cooper, Todd's killing himself, Gene Hackman, Hillary Swank, oh, Todd, Gene Hackman, S Hillary Swank, Swank. My Michael Caine, Michael Caine. Yeah, I knew we missed some. Uh, more Olivia ones. De Havilland, Sally Field. I was gonna say that. Shelly oh, Winters, cute. and Spencer Tracy. So, I think you guys did really well, but it sounds like Zach is the champion, and now Zach gets to pick a movie that one of us has to watch. Uh, You could have Terry watch Margaret, or... You, you said you wanted me to watch that Jay Baruchel movie. 
that I haven't seen. Uh, yeah, but you know, you chose to sweep blood of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't as bad as you said, but it was two hours of but, that. Huh. But the first I mean, one th that he was... chose, he did choose Catch Me If You Can first. Yeah. Do you I... want some time to think about this? I think I'm going to have to think about it. Okay, okay. This, this is an opportunity I may never get again, remember. This is true. Yeah. I mean, who knows when you're going to win Oscar trivia again. <laughs> exactly. I have to savor it. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to uh, wrap this up and move into our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. Uh, Zach, since you are still basking in your uh, glorious victory over Todd, why don't you start us off with your quote of the day? Uh, well, my quote has some profanity in it, so I, I assume that in the editing room you'll uh, that's you'll okay. Do the appropriate action. I, I, but, I've had um, I'll have to uh, I, bleep out more things in this podcast than any other one we've had so far. <laughs> that's what downsizing did to us. It just kind of brought out well, the, the profanity. Listen, I, I, I couldn't possibly choose a quote from Downsizing because that movie was so horrible, but I, I did think of a line from another Alexander Payne movie that might describe my experience watching Downsizing, and the line goes, it tastes like the back of a huh. L.A. school bus. Probably didn't destem, hoping for some semblance of concentration, crushed it up with leaves and mites, wound up with this rancid tar and turpentine mouthwash bowl. Huh. Huh. raid. Have fun with that, Terry. That, that was more for than <laughs> Tastes pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, uh, Todd, why don't you go next? <laughs> Alright, my quote of the day comes from one of my favorite three-hour movies, Grindhouse. It is the voiceover, white meat, dark meat, all will be carved. Thanksgiving. <laughs> you got the tone right, too. That, that, was, that was a great impression there. That was good. That was good. Well, my quote, thanks, uh, thanks. my quote is possibly uh, one of the most quoted lines that Tot and I have <clears throat> from my uh, archive review of The Recruit. Colin Farrell and Al Pacino are uh, are walking through D.C. and they stop at a park bench, and Colin Farrell uh, looks at him and says, uh, "Is this where you tell me about duty and sacrifice?" And Al Pacino says, "No, this is where I get my breakfast burrito. Try it." It's heaven. So there you go. <laughs> Little uh, I love that. Quote. I know it's a great quote. Did I make it? Oh. Can I make it? Oh, so close. <laughs> uh, why do we love that movie so much? I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, wait, Al Pacino. He know. could have made the, our list of multiple Oscar winners if he had won for the recruit. <clears throat> it's true. Know, it's true. It's true. It's true. Hey, that, that movie also has Tom Brady's baby mama, so... It does. A... It does. That is true. Well, Terry, I think we need to have a little uh, Kevin Spacey on the piano play us out. Maybe some nice <laughs> tunes. <laughs> As time yes, goes by. despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the line at the end of our podcast every week. <laughs> Are you chewing gum? <laughs> All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for listening uh, to the Almost Sideways podcast. Uh, we will catch you in a couple weeks. And until then, enjoy watching movies, and we will see you later. So that was a disaster. Catch you on a Monday.